Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 197 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I'm talking with a paleontologist who's here to review the reptiles who once ruled our planet's skies, pterosaurs. Even though they've been gone for millions of years, the fossils they left behind can tell fascinating stories about how they lived. We discuss what life was like for the largest creatures to ever fly, where Pokemon got paleontology right and wrong, and how knowledge of the present can inform theories about the past. We also get some insight into what it's like to study fossils in Australia and use snapshots of the past to bring these bizarre and fascinating animals back to life, from digging in the outback to naming an entire species. If you think having to get your laptop out of your bag is annoying, try getting pterosaur bones through airport security. But before we get into all that, I wanted to make a very quick but very exciting announcement that we are moving from Florida all the way to the evergreen state of Washington. So our release schedule is going to be a little chaotic this summer as we make this transition and get settled into our new home. We'll have more details about that in next week's episode, so stay tuned. Now, get out your chisel and brush and start digging. Just the Zoo of Us presents Pterosaurs with Adele Pentland. Hello, everybody. It's Ellen Weatherford. I'm here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast. I'm stoked this week because we are taking a trip in the time machine. Today, we're talking to a new friend. This is Adele Pentland. Say hi, Adele. Hi. I am so excited to get to know you and get to know our animal today. Adele, what are your pronouns real quick? My pronouns are she, her, and I'm on Koa Country and just want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where I work and recognize their connections to land, sea, sky, and community. I pay my respects to the elders past, present, and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today and anyone who might be listening. Thank you so much. How lovely. And you are speaking to us from the other side of the globe from where I am at the moment. Yeah, I'm based in outback Queensland in Australia. My brother once charmingly said to me, because I'm from Melbourne originally, when he looked where I was going to live, he said to me, you're above one of the E's in Queensland. (laughs) As if like looking at it on a map, like how the word would be spelled across it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what this distance is in miles, but I'm um, 1,300-something kilometers away from the capital city for my state. So what is that Mm. in miles? Uh, We call that way out there. That's what we (laughs) call it. A lot. That's too much. (laughs) If you're in Europe, you're in a different country, honey. 800 miles. Okay. Yeah. The the word we use for that where I live is the boonies. You're in the boonies. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I'll I'll make it happen. (laughs) <laughs> you can have that word. That's that's a gift for me to you. <laughs> Excellent. I'll keep that in my pocket. 
Yes, please do. Uh, today we are talking about pterosaurs. I'm going to try really hard not to just use pterosaurs and dinosaurs interchangeably, because uh, that is one piece of information I have in my brain, right? That that is not necessarily like a synonymous term, right? No, no, they are different. Pterosaurs aren't flying dinosaurs, but we can get into that a little bit later. Yes. Okay. Before we do, let's talk about you a little bit. Um, Adele, how did you get into the work that you do with pterosaurs? This is like a really, really cool, I think a lot of people, you know, like as kids want to grow up and and do paleontology. And and I think this is for a lot of people is like living the dream. How did you get into this work? Yeah. So I'm just going to out myself right now as a big just the zoo of us fans. Ah! So I love animals. And if you had asked me as a kid, Adele, what do you want to be when you grow up? Every time, except for that one week, I wanted to be an Olympic pole vaulter and maybe <laughs> the two months I wanted to be a cartoonist. Uh, okay, okay. I wanted to be a vet. So I loved animals and I loved learning about animals, but I think it's maybe better that I work with dead animals now because it's a lot easier to fix a broken bone with glue than it is with surgery, in my opinion. Heaps of respect to vets. I know in Australia and I'm guessing in other places around the world, you know, it's pretty tough to be a vet and they don't always get treated with the most respect or the respect that they're due. So, but yes, I did a lot of science subjects in high school, really wanted to get into vet science and I didn't get the marks to get in. So I did a Bachelor of Science and then found the geology program through there. And then my paleontology lecturer was just phenomenal. He's absolutely amazing. Um, his name's Dr. Chris Mays, and he's he's actually teaching over in Ireland at the moment. Um, hey, Chris, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he just really inspired me to want to work on paleontology. So I then did an honors project, which I don't know if everyone has honors. It's like doing a master's program, but instead of two years, it's like less than a year. It's pretty intense, but you do your own research project essentially. And um, I really wanted to work with Chris and go over to the Chatham Islands, which is a small series of islands off New Zealand. And I missed out on getting into that as well. But instead, I got to work on amber. So for months and months, I was looking down a microscope trying to find insects trapped in amber, which, yeah, was absolutely amazing. And once I finished doing that project, I just knew that I couldn't go back. I couldn't not do paleontology. Like anything (laughs) else would have just paled in comparison. And I would have always just had this pang and this hole in my heart of like, what if I could have gone and done paleontology? But I get to do it now. So I bet you've never been bitten by one of your specimens. (laughs) No, no. I have found some interesting dinosaur teeth before, but I didn't find them by pricking my finger on them. I know someone I uh, worked with at the museum, she found a tooth that way in the field. No, normally it's the other way around. So I once accidentally broke 
one of the bones I was studying because I dropped my phone charger on it. Oh no! But I fixed it. It's fine. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. I was in such a foul mood for like an hour. I'm like, oh, I can't believe I did that. I just butterfingers. This bone has sat here completely unscathed for millions and millions of years and <laughs> survived everything of it. And then, and then a phone charger takes it out. <laughs> It survived like a hundred million years, but it couldn't survive my butterfingers. Um, it's fine. There are there are other bones. Uh, thankfully, I work with really old stuff, but I do know for folks in Australia who work with megafauna stuff, particularly if it's a cave deposit, because that bone hasn't been buried and been subject to normal geological processes and had that bone reinforced with silica and other stuff their bones are super, super fragile. So I've heard of instances someone's carrying this big like leg bone or arm bone from Diprotodon, which is the biggest marsupial to ever live, and the whole thing has just crumbled. (sighs) And then they've spent months trying to piece it back together. So thankfully I haven't had anything like that. But yes, I'm sometimes a bit of a klutz. What does your work look like for you? Are you like out at dig sites digging in the ground. Yeah, so I should also state that I'm currently a PhD student. I'm now based at Curtin University in Perth, which again, it's pretty far away from where I live. And I'm also a research associate at the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum of Natural History. So I'm halfway through my PhD. We're actually going to go, there's a dig starting next week. And then I'll help out the following week on that dig. So I do go out into the field a bit, which I love. Normally every year I sort of go out into the field about three weeks or a month or so. But a lot of the time I'm just going there to hang out and because I love field work, most of the time it has absolutely nothing to do with pterosaurs because they're really rare and hard to find. Um, So I'm just going out there to hang and to help out. I feel like when I... Um, because the only time I ever see, you know, fossils or remnants of of long past creatures, I feel like I get really emotional, feeling like this is like part of ancient natural history, and I feel like like this thing has been here on the earth for millions of years, and now like in my little tiny blip of existence, I get to cross paths with this creature. I'm just wondering, like, if you, do you ever in your work with these like ancient extinct creatures, do you get that sort of like emotional feeling? Definitely, it's really special when you are the first person that's ever seen a fossil. No one in the world has ever seen it. It hasn't seen the light of day in millions of years. But probably the most intense moment of that feeling is when I found a fly in amber. And the amber is younger than the stuff I work on now, but it was 40 million years old. And it just looked perfect. And that was just mind-boggling to see those, you know, big bulging eyes just staring back at you and it's just trapped and frozen in time, this perfect little creature. You get like a little screenshot. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So the animal that we're talking about today is a long extinct animal. May they rest in peace, pour one out, gone but never forgotten. We're talking about pterosaurs. For people who are listening who maybe aren't very familiar with pterosaurs, could you introduce us a little bit? What's a pterosaur? Yeah, so I think everyone has a sense of what a pterosaur is. Like if you went down to the cop shop, the police station, and you had a lineup 
and someone said, right, point out the pterosaur, and there were all these extinct animals, I'm sure like nine out of 10 people would be able to point them out, right? We call them pterodactyls. It's up there with like T-Rex. Yeah, they're iconic scene fillers. That's <laughs> how I like to describe them because even I was looking at a book on sauropods last night and on the cover of this book that's just on sauropods, which are long neck dinosaurs, so little foot from Land Before Time, there's a pterosaur in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you know, it's great for paleo artists to include them just to kind of timestamp a piece, a reconstruction to show that, you know, this is dinosaur period. But yeah, people will call them flying dinosaurs, not strictly true. They'll call them pterodactyls, again, not strictly true. But pterosaurs are winged reptiles and they lived during the age of dinosaurs. And as you said before, they went extinct. They went extinct 65 million years ago at the end of the Cretaceous period, along with the non-avian dinosaurs, which is what we mainly think of as being dinosaurs, and marine reptiles, when a absolutely chunk of a meteorite 10 kilometers wide, 6.2 miles in diameter, I believe, just smacked really? into... Yeah, pretty intense. It's quite something. That's like from my house to the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> just a big chunk of rock just colliding with the earth. So yeah, not a great time to be around. No, I'll pass on that. No, thank yeah. you. Glad I was not there. <laughs> but yes, so pterosaurs lived during the Mesozoic period. So we have fossils that go all the way back to the Triassic, the Jurassic, and then the Cretaceous periods. So prime dinosaur real estate time. I'm glad that you mentioned long necks from the land before time, because I was also going to talk about the land before time. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, Petrie, of course. Yes, I mentioned that I had like a positive childhood memory associated with pterosaurs. It was Petrie from the land before time. And that's always how I've me remembered how to spell pterosaur because it's with like Petrie, like the P is pronounced. And I feel like for a lot of people, that's like the intro to like pterosaurs. Is it just that pterodactyls are like a type of pterosaur? Yes, exactly right. So pterodactyls are, well, pterodactylus is a genus of pterosaur. So if you say the word pterodactyl, but you're kind of referring to all pterosaurs, it's kind of like if someone just called all dinosaurs tyrannosaurs. Yeah, okay, it's like an over-extrapolation. Yeah. What types of pterosaurs have you worked on? Yeah, so being based in Australia, I've mainly just been working on Australian pterosaurs. We mainly have a group called Ornithochirids. I should say there are over 100 species of pterosaurs, so this is going to be like a sort of broad strokes vibe. We might even talk about the pterosaur that I named but yeah, there's over 100 species of pterosaurs, which kind of sounds like a lot. But then just to throw back to sauropods, there's over 200 species of sauropods, and they're just one type of dinosaur. Whereas in terms of like the hierarchy of biology, dinosaurs and pterosaurs, those groups are like on par in terms of like the levels. The taxonomic tier. Yes, yes, exactly right. But yeah, they're really hard to find because their bones are hollow because they flew around. They're the oh. first vertebrates to develop powered flight. Never mind that insects had, you know, gotten onto the land. And I think they were flying around 
maybe in the Devonian, definitely in the Carboniferous. So like millions and millions of years before vertebrates got onto the scene. But yes, pterosaurs develop powered flight. So what I mean by that is they're actually launching themselves and flying around by flapping their wings, which are their modified forearms. No one can see me do this except for Ellen, but I'm like frantically, (laughs) I look like I'm doing the chicken dance and I've just had a Red Bull, an energy drink. You're fully flapping. (laughs) I'm trying and I'm not getting lift. It's really frustrating. So not just gliding, not getting up to a you know treetop or whatever and then gliding down. No, these guys were able to just go up into the sky or they might have needed to do a bit of a, a run up or a hop up. <laughs> but yeah, so pterosaurs flew millions of years before the first birds took to the skies and their wings are a bit more like a bat's actually. So their wings are made up of a membrane of skin. So bats have five digits and like if you draw a bat, or if you look at a Halloween decoration of a bat, you can kind of see sometimes where the bones are going through the wing and supporting it. Pterosaurs, they have four digits. Three are tiny little nubbins that don't do much at all. And then their wings are actually (laughs) their ring fingers that are like stretched out and super long. And then their wing membrane just attaches to that. Um, And then it goes all the way down and attaches to their ankle in a lot of cases. That is a lot like bats. Yeah. Yeah, that's more like analogous to bats than it is to birds, I guess. Yeah. Oh, so early paleontologists were really struggling to figure out what the heck pterosaurs were doing because (laughs) they found them in marine deposits. So bottom of the ocean, you know, you have fish, you have these kinds of things, and then you have this thing that looks a bit more like a bat. There's like a really funny lithograph, which is like a wood stamped cutting and it's just like these demonic bats from hell with but with really (laughs) long necks like the long neck of a heron and then like this rodent-y well actually it looks more like a rodent rather than a bat it's horrifying (laughs) we should put it on the just the zoo of us um socials so people can see what we're talking about because it makes me laugh every time. I could put that up as an episode teaser. Be like, what animal do you think we're talking about this week? Here's a picture. Nobody's going to know. And yeah. Like, what is that? Nobody's going to want to listen either. They're going to be like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> and then the bat people will be like, yes. And then it'll be pterosaurs. And then they'll be like, no. <laughs> Psych. Also, like you mentioned that they're found in marine deposits. The early ones were. Yeah. I've heard recently that like our modern understanding of the continents shifting around and like the continents not having always been where they currently are is like a a more recent understanding. And so that like for a lot of time, scientists didn't always know that like just because there's not an ocean there now doesn't mean there wasn't an ocean there. So like people would be like, I don't know. How did this thing swim? (laughs) That's so weird. I was in the ocean. (laughs) Yeah. So play tectonics is something that had been proposed like decades ago, but they only worked out what the mechanism was. So like for a while, people had looked at the coast of Africa with the coasts of South America and be like, oh, isn't it funny? Isn't it a funny coincidence that if you just like (laughs) cut them out as pieces of paper, they fit together? Isn't that weird? Better not look into that. (laughs) 
<laughs> it wasn't until the 1960s during the Cold War when people were looking for other folks' submarines that they actually worked out that the ocean crust is sort of driving these processes. So old crust gets really heavy and it sinks to the bottom in what's called subduction zones, but new crust is also being formed. And I think you've touched on before in the show, like, deep sea vent animals, like these little organisms um, that are extremophiles living in these really harsh environments, but they're just like plucking little bits of salt. real weirdos. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> there are tube worms. There are, oh, there's some crazy crustaceans. I think you've touched on before. There's like crazy looking gastropods as well, like snails. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My favorite. I love them. It's It's a whole <laughs> other world down there. Uh, I should point out, not all pterosaurs live in marine environments, but you can get really nice preservation of pterosaurs in marine sediments. Also, like, restricted lagoon environments are amazing because it's just really still water and they get buried really quickly with sediment and hopefully before, you know, things start scavenging on a carcass. But there have also been finds of pterosaurs in desert environments as well, which is absolutely mind-blowing. Um, and they're, they've been found on every single continent. So at the moment, Antarctica is only repping three bones at the moment, and we still have a lot to learn about what the pterosaurs are doing in Madagascar and India. I think New Zealand only has two bones as well. But yeah, they're known from everywhere. That is a that scoreboard needs some numbers on it. We need to start putting up some numbers up there. <laughs> Pterosaurs need to stop eroding and turning to dust and be easier to find, please. It's rude, honestly. At this point, like get it together, pterosaurs, yeah. please. Come on. This is embarrassing. We're going to do our best here to rate this animal with the understanding that no human being has ever seen one. So we're just, <laughs> they're not here to listen to these numbers. So we don't have to worry, I think, about offending them. But anyway, if you're, this is your first time listening to this show, we review animals by rating them out of 10 in different categories. The first one is effectiveness. This is adaptations to the animal's body to let it thrive, let it survive, let it do the things it's trying to do in the context that it lived in millions of years ago. What would you give pterosaurs out of 10 for effectiveness? A completely biased 10. When I'm thinking of pterosaurs, I'm thinking of them being pretty big. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm, I'm imagining them being maybe like, I don't know, a few feet wingspan, you know, like a, like a, you know what I'm thinking of now that I realize is in Jurassic World when Jimmy Buffett gets up and he's walking around with the margaritas in oh, his hands. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of what I'm thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> How big were they? Were they big? Were they little? They ranged in size. So the smaller ones had wingspans of about 30 centimeters, which is what, about a foot? Let's just call that one chicken in wingspan. <laughs> yeah, I'm bringing it back. There are people listening right now that are punching the air. They're like, yes, you said it. <laughs> I don't know if Christian listens to guest episodes, but I just, I'm a, I would like to think that maybe if he did, he'd cringe just a little bit. But anyway. Um, well, he's going to now. <laughs> yeah, so they got up to massive sizes. So pterosaurs are the group that includes the largest vertebrates to ever fly around. I know there's articles online saying the extinct birds are Pelagornis sandesi or Argentavis magnificens had the biggest wingspans, but that's just 
for birds. So both those species have wingspans around seven meters, which is massive. That's, you know, between 20 to 24 feet or 10 chickens stacked on top of each other. But like sideways. <laughs> yeah. But the biggest pterosaur we know of is called Quetzalcoatlus northropi, and it's from the late Cretaceous of North America. So that would be like 68, 66 million years ago. So just the end of the Cretaceous before they went extinct. And conservative estimates, like the minimum wingspan estimates for Quetzalcoatlus, are 10 meters, which is just shy of 33 feet. <sighs> Or a bit over 14 chickens. That's still massive. Like, That's too big. I was going to say it's too big, but also like if that if that thing flies over your head, you're getting a full eclipse. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. You're getting complete like darkness for a few seconds as this thing just like swoops over. If I get that, I'm just diving for the nearest bush or something because I'm like, nope, nope, we're just <laughs> plated because there's no way you would not be able to step to something that big. So that's an edentulous species, which means that they have a beak with no teeth. Some pterosaurs did have teeth. Oh. But yeah, just imagine like a giant, massive, something with the head of a crane, you know, that big, long beak. And mm. if it's just pecking at you, just nope. I live in a place where herons are very, very common and, and storks too, like herons and storks and these large wading birds that have, you know, giant swords for faces. Mm. Um, and something that I've often said is that we're all lucky that they are the size that they are because with their speed and agility and like knife face, like those things could be plucking us off. Like we would be like hors d'oeuvres to these things if they were big enough to eat us. So I'm feeling really grateful right now that we don't live at the same time as Quetzalcoatlus. Yeah. It's crazy to think that, you know, the biggest birds we have around today, the wandering albatross, they have wingspans sort of approaching three something meters, maybe like just shy of four meters, which would be maybe 13 feet you know something that might be three times the size of a wandering albatross is just it boggles the mind um so yeah i gave pterosaurs a full 10 out of 10 for um effectiveness because as we touched on before they're the first vertebrates to develop powered flights they were then able to hunt Insects are the small ones, probably ate insects. And then, yeah, the big ones were able to eat fish. There's suggestions that some might have been frugivores, so eating fruit. And then, like, some of the big ones, like Quetzalcoatlus, there's conjecture that they were scavengers and they plucked their carcasses and stuff. Honestly, something that big can probably just eat whatever it wants. Right, like, take your pick, my man. Yeah. What am I going to say, no? Like... Mm. <laughs> Like, just to put it in perspective, when Quetzalcoatlus is standing, Terraces walked on all fours, I should also say as well. A bizarre image. Yeah, yeah. I mean, bats have to go on the ground and they crawl around. So I don't know. It's like having your wing lifted off. And so it's, it's not, not cute when they do it either. No, no. But again, who am I Who am I to disagree? Um, <laughs> so when Quetzalcoatlus is standing upright... It's about the same size as a male African giraffe. Oh, my Lord. That's too big. Goodness. Right? That's too much. That's too much of that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and that is a massive size to be like to be maintaining lift in the sky. Mm-hmm. You know, I know humans eventually figured out how to do it with airplanes and stuff like that. But you know, we had to really put our brains to it, right? They had to like build it into their body. Yeah. They had to like incorporate it into their blueprints. Yeah, and it, what I find crazy as well is that there's been recent studies that show that even from like a young age, pterosaurs could fly pretty good. So like, I've got to hand it to them, you know, they're pretty precocial and yeah, just being able to fly around. If you're in a bad season, then you would be able to migrate, go to new areas, get new food resources. So I'm completely biased and I don't care. (laughs) Well, I suppose at a time like this where not a lot of other creatures had developed flight yet, right? Like if you can be the first one to do it, you're at a huge advantage, right? Like you've got the high ground literally like for sure nobody can reach you up there (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely in terms of like vertebrates and stuff i do want to acknowledge yes insects have been doing it long before but then yeah the terraces would have just been snapping them out of the sky and eating them and probably having a great time is there any sort of like evidence that you know of of like anything eating pterosaurs, if there was anything out there that was able to like counter them? Yes. Oh. So there is a very, it's very metal, right? <laughs> so there's, uh, by which I mean hardcore. Um, so there's a series of three neck bones, three neck vertebrae preserved in situ. So they're like one after the other as if they would have been in life position of a pterosaur and embedded in, I think the middle vertebrae is the tooth of a spinosaurus or a spinosaurid, I should say. <gasps> That's yeah. the one. Yeah. So pterosaurs, if they were hunting in water and there's been aerodynamic and I guess hydrodynamic studies to kind of demonstrate that yes pterosaurs can launch themselves from water because it makes sense right you want to dive and get fish it can't just be game over once you hit the water they're not the wicked witch out of um wizard of oz (laughs) they're not gonna melt and dissolve into the sea (laughs) no but they would have been you know pretty vulnerable at that time so there's um that evidence and then There's another example, it would be from one of the really great deposits in Germany, Um, and I think there's a pterosaur with a fish biting its wing. I might be slightly misremembering this, but they're basically Mm. like fossilized together. So it's kind of been suggested that maybe the pterosaur was hunting a fish and then this other fish nabbed it, but yeah. There's um, an attack of opportunity. (laughs) There's definitely beef going on. I wouldn't be surprised as well, like, because crocs have been around since dinosaur times as well. Like, I'm sure if they could have, a Cretaceous croc would have definitely eaten pterosaur eggs if they were around or the little baby ones. But don't have any evidence for that yet. It's just the fish and the spinosaurid at the moment. I like to imagine the predators on the ground in the water and stuff like that. They're looking up at the pterosaurs that are just soaring around through the air and they're like, I know you got to come down sometime. (laughs) That's it. Just like, wait. (laughs) You'll get tired. They're like, you can't stay up there forever. (laughs) Hey there. We're going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of the other shows on the Maximum Fun Network. When we get back, we're rating ingenuity and aesthetics for pterosaurs. So stick around. 
my fellow graduates, for 500 episodes, my podcast, The JV Club with Janet Varney, has gathered story after story of all the scandalous things we've done throughout our childhoods. Wait, what's happening? Stories like how Jamila Jamil survived a horrific house party and she was on crutches. Or how Hal Lublin learned a Shakespearean monologue in his pajamas. This is not the speech we approve. Without your love and life tragedies, there would be no podcast. In fact, I'll have an exclusive look at how Maggie Lawson's mom confronted her after a sneaky basement meetup with her crush. Spill the tea, JV. Security! Uh, uh, listen to the JV Club with Janet Varney Thursdays on Maximum Fun! Class of forever! Parenting. It's hard, but don't worry, you're not alone. Belly up to the low bar with one bad mother and let us remind you that fine is good enough. They want to climb on different things. And how am I supposed to keep them both from dying? (laughs) There is a right way to do this. And if I can figure out that right way, I'm going to be a good parent. So that is not a thing. So join us each week and let us tell you that you are doing a good job. You can listen to One Bad Mother on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. The next category that we rate animals on in this podcast is ingenuity, which is behavior. So what is the animal actually doing to solve problems that it faces and things like that? And I know that for an extinct animal that nobody has ever seen or interacted with in in life, this is going to be (laughs) doing our best. So I'm really curious to see what direction you're going to take this in. But what do you give pterosaurs for ingenuity? Oh, I mean... I'm going to be less biased with this one, and I'm going to give them... I mean, it's hard, right? Because there's so many different species, and fossil behavior is hard to work out. But I'm going to give them a 7 out of 10 for ingenuity. And the reason being is... There's one species that's been really well studied. There's multiple examples of this species, and it's called Pterodostro. And it's sometimes called the flamingo pterosaur. So it's weird. It's super weird. It has hundreds of thin needle teeth and its lower jaw is actually sort of shaped like the keel of a boat. It's, you know, curved in a bow and they probably would have, you know, been around these water environments and they're called the flamingo pterosaurs because they probably strained their food. So in this particular species, they have found gastroliths, which are stomach stones um, or gizzard. Well, I guess I don't know if they have a gizzard because (laughs) soft tissues and intestines don't (laughs) fossilize really great. But you would have talked about gizzard stones in some species of birds. And if this is a new term for anyone, it's when an animal intentionally swallows stones and basically turns itself into a walking mortar and pestle. And it's trying (laughs) to use the rocks to like grind up food, like mechanically grind up their food so that the digestive process is easier. That's got to be difficult for a, for something that flies because it throws off your balance too, doesn't it? Like I know fish and like aquatic animals sometimes will swallow stones to weigh them down, yeah. like use it like a keel mm-hmm. and keep them like centered. So like, does that, is that something that maybe would have like messed with their ability to fly? That's a really good question. I don't think so. I think they would have been able to adjust to it. I mean, even if, say, there's a tear in the wing or there's slight damage to the primary feathers or tail feathers sometimes, which are used to sort of steer birds around. I'm talking about birds at the moment. 
I think they can sometimes make do because they're sort of aware of their limitations, even if things are a bit lopsided. They probably wouldn't have hurt them flying. Sure. I mean, if this thing's already pretty big, right? Mm. Like if, the, if the if this is already a large creature, I suppose a couple rocks isn't going to like be that big of a of a weight increase. Yeah. Proportionally. Yeah. And when females would get ready to lay eggs, I should also say pterosaurs laid eggs. When they would have been ready to do that, there would have been like a little bit of extra weight. I know pterosaurs have two functional oviducts, so they can they have like two eggs going on at the same time. So one on the left, one on the right side. But modern day birds, they only have one functional oviduct. Oh, interesting. I don't know which one it is, and I don't know if it's the same side all the time, so (laughs) do not ask me. But yeah, even when a bird is sort of getting ready to lay her egg and that egg's still inside her, I don't think it messes up with her flight or anything, because that would suck. Mm. Yeah, well, she'd basically be like... A sitting duck. Yeah. And my understanding is that there were very many things, you know, dinosaurs and things that would specialize in, like, nabbing eggs of other stuff. I mean, there still are to this day, but, like, sure. I'm thinking of, like, dinosaurs that would, like, yank eggs out of... The the whole intro scene to Land Before Time. It was all, it was going on like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Only some of you will make it. You know, I was going to ask you about the Apple TV documentary series Prehistoric Planet. <laughs> I'm pulling a face. You, you made a face. And I don't know how to interpret the face. <laughs> it's one of shame. Okay. One of my mates was, um, she was quite mad at me and probably rightly so. I actually haven't watched Prehistoric Planet because I live in the middle of nowhere. That's okay. I have intentions to do it. You should as soon as you have Please access to Please no one kick it. me out of paleontology. Don't take away my license. <laughs> That's what that face was, because I know a lot of people are going to be listening here and they're going to be like, I can't believe you're a paleontologist who hasn't seen Prehistoric Planet. (laughs) It's okay, because I watched it. I loved it. It was great. A lot of people really liked it. My understanding is that a lot of it was, you know, they, they naturally had like, you know, a great team of scientific consultants and everything like that. But also a lot of it was kind of creative, yes. right? Like a lot of it was very imaginative and like filling in behaviors that we know from modern animals. So it would take like behaviors that you see in a modern animal and like, mapping it onto a dinosaur. So it'd be a dinosaur doing something that like we would immediately recognize as like, oh, I know exactly what animal does that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, I don't think it was Quetzalcoatlus, but it was some kind of very large pterosaur that like was a prominent sort of figure in the series. And my husband and I, when we watched it, as soon as this pterosaur was on the screen, we spent like five minutes trying to figure out what we were even looking at. It was so like the most bizarre creature it had like none of the proportions were what we thought they were going to be. Let me see if I can look up what kind it was. Okay. Because it was the most bizarre looking thing. They're weird. They're all really weird to look at. Can I just say for pterosaurs? And that's part of the reason why I love them. I know one has a really weird shaped skull and it basically looks like it's turned its skull into a wind sail. Like it has this big long spine just sticking out of its forehead. And it's like, how, why would you... To fly, what are you thinking? Why, why, are, you, like, why are you like that? <laughs> yeah, um, and it's called Nyctosaurus. I love them, but they're a challenge sometimes. Absolutely nonsensical. It's Hatsagopteryx. Oh. Is what's in this, is what's in Prehistoric Planet. And the whole time we were watching it, we were like, what part of it is the head? <laughs> <laughs> like, 
<laughs> which end <laughs> oh like, yeah we were like are those arms like what what where are the legs like what is happening we were so confused by this creature pterosaurs it's all arm day they skip leg day so bad their legs are so <laughs> tiny they have a tiny little pelvis as well they're just super heavy. And it's funny, people will look at pterosaur fossil footprints and tracks and trackways, which are tracks one after the other, right? And because they're so top heavy, sometimes you'll only have their little like three finger nubbins stubbing into the ground and their feet aren't even like making enough of an imprint to leave a track oh behind. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They're like walking on their hands. When you were describing that they're like all arms with tiny little legs, I'm thinking this is a perfect inverse of the T Rex, right? Oh my God. Like it's just a complete reversal of the concept. (laughs) And a short little tail. Flipped it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the the top heaviness of these creatures is something that looks to, I'm thinking of how they looked in Prehistoric Planet, but like, I was looking, I was like, it doesn't even look physically, like the physics don't make sense. They Mm. look so top heavy that they look like they should just like topple over. (laughs) Yeah, they basically look like aliens sometimes. very alien-like. Like there isn't an animal alive today that really, really looks like a pterosaur because again, like the animals that the vertebrates that we have flying around today are birds and bats and that's it and yeah bats will crawl around on the ground and birds have feathers so that's different again the reason that i brought up prehistoric planet was because of how like the the interesting thing about it was how you could see these animals that we really only know from these snapshots we have of their fossils and like animating them in a way where you can see the way they would behave and i wanted to ask you about that because i am really curious about like how the fossils that we are able to find can sometimes like tell stories about what the animal's life was like um and i was i was going to ask you if you could like think of any like examples of you know things that we would be able to fit, piece together about pterosaurs and how they would have lived based on the sort of little remnants that we have of them. Yeah, so getting back to pterodostro, I mentioned before they have gastroliths to help them digest uh, really tough material, so that's pretty clever. And then the other thing that I love about them is that they probably lived in colonies. So we have a really great fossil record for that particular species. There's been like a few individuals where there's been a couple that are fully complete. There's a couple that are complete but missing their heads and stuff like that. And they also have really young ones, and they also have discovered an egg with a fossilized embryo inside it oh wow but yes because of the abundance of all this stuff together they think that these pterosaurs were social so they're living together um looking out for each other in these big colonies i mean it's hard to work out how much parental care is going on with pterosaurs as well but normally things that live in colonies They're looking after the nest or someone's looking after the nest at some point, right? And protecting it from predators. So that's really smart as well, especially considering we don't really know that much about the clutch size, like how many eggs a pterosaur is laying in a nest in a season, but it's not going to be hundreds. I tell you that much. Mm. Like they 
probably won't be able to cope and pump out that many eggs. So they can't do that strategy of just like, oh, I'll just pump out, you know, a thousand eggs and leave you guys to it. Hope for the best. (laughs) See you later. Bye. So they're probably, you know, looking after their eggs and trying to invest in them and look after them, which is pretty clever. And I know with birds, they're a little bit better at um, sharing parenting duties a little bit more evenly than perhaps some humans. (laughs) So again, we love that. But yeah, it's kind of hard to work out. That's why I kind of went with a seven out of 10. I'm sure, you know, there would have been some interesting things that they might have done in terms of hunting and stuff with their different diets. But fossils are hard in that kind of respect. Um, The only other thing I can really think of is, I, I can't even remember what fossil site this is from, there is a series of fossil footprints interpreted as belonging to a pterosaur and also some probe marks, so some points where the pterosaur has stuck its beak into the ground and it's trying to grab something in soft, squishy mud or sediment. So maybe that was a dumb thing to do and nothing was there. Maybe it was able to work out that there was food there and he nabbed him. Who knows? That's interesting because that makes me think of uh, probe foraging, Mm. which ibises, we have ibises here and they do that. Um, (sighs) You have ibises there. We call them bin chickens. Yes. They're little, they're basically trash bandits in the cities. And I, with all, you know, I've never met a bin chicken. And so I have to say, with all of the respect and love in my heart, I think our ibises are maybe cuter. Our ibises are adorable. (laughs) Ours ruin picnics. Ours, they're a whole mess. I mean, we have a few different species, but yeah, the main common one and stuff it's like a common trope for them to be um, perched on a bin, just raiding the garbage that's <laughs> spilling out everywhere. Our ibises are very nice. They're beautiful. They're they're usually like either from from white to red, but they can oh. also be like a really cute little pink color. <gasps> oh. like adorable! They're totally feathered. They're not bald like the oh. like the like the bin chickens yes. are. They they don't have the bald heads. They're all feathered. Oh, and they just like they'll all descend in a flock in someone's yard, and then they probe forage. So they just poke their little bill down into the ground and poke 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 and crawl around and 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 look for you know bugs and stuff like that in the soil and my husband told me about this during our kiwi episode that kiwis also do that even though they're not related to ibises that like kiwis will do the same thing like poke down into the dirt and what they're doing is like feeling around to see if they can feel vibrations yeah the bills are sensitive isn't it so they can kind of yeah like they have little like receptors Hmm. to kind of tell like what's going on in there so that makes me wonder like if pterosaurs maybe would have been doing something similar to that like probe foraging in the ground because he said that they have these like long sort of narrow like bills yeah so. so some of them have that really long bill it's kind of contentious actually so even on the group that i work on which um ornithochirids they don't have like a knife for a face but there's some conjecture about whether on the bone surface itself whether you can see little channels and grooves and pits, whether that's evidence of sort of sensory capabilities within the beak. Because the beaks, I should say, and the jaws, they would have been covered in keratin, most likely. And it's, yeah, it's hard to imagine that just none of them had it because it's it's like you said before right. it's such an advantage and you know these types of things have evolved in multiple 
different lineages, multiple different groups of animals. So yeah, again, I would love to hop into a time machine and actually look at pterosaurs <laughs> and see what they're doing. What 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 are you hiding in there? What do you know? <laughs> I mean, even platypuses have sensitive bills, right? So like it's not like a far-fetched thing. Yeah, but they also have like a toxic spur. They got everything. <laughs> everything. But just the males. They had a little evolutionary grab bag. They're like, I'll take one of each, please. Yeah. I'll take every weird little superpower you've got. Yeah, you did an episode <laughs> on the platypus. Yeah, had to do that one very early on because there was no way I was going to be able to sit and wait on that one. <laughs> this like sensitive, you know, bill thing is something that comes up a lot. Like you've seen this like evolve independently in a lot of different lineages. So I guess it wouldn't be incredibly far fetched. Um, we just need but... a really great fossil of a pterosaur that got covered in ash, like a Pompeii pterosaur with the keratin in there. And yeah, that'll <laughs> that'll just be the one. But wouldn't that be so amazing? Oh, my <laughs> gosh. It would be great. We don't have, like, a lot of volcanic fossil deposits in Australia, and we're not mm. known for our active volcanoes either. So I don't think I'm going to find any here, but who knows? It's a unique perspective to be bummed out that you're not known for active volcanic activity. <laughs> To be like, ah oh, man, it's just we just don't get enough good volcanic eruptions here. I mean, there's a there's a trade off, <laughs> right? I think that uh, perhaps the paleontology community might be among the only ones in the world who are like, if we could just get a good volcanic eruption, like just get a, a nice gnarly one. I don't want it now. <laughs> I want it millions of years ago. <laughs> I'm not asking for much. <laughs> is that too much to ask? Really, I don't think it is. If we were to have like a perfectly preserved pterosaur as it lived, we would be able to get a good look at them and see like what they looked like in life. Unfortunately, we can't. We have to go off of what we know based on what we have. And that makes me wonder what you're going to give pterosaurs out of 10 for aesthetics. Because we kind of only have their bones, the memories of them to, to go off of. But, you know, just based on what we know, what would you give pterosaurs out of 10 for aesthetics? Are we going with aesthetics being how nice they are to look at or how intriguing they you are know, to look at? <laughs> I will let you decide because sometimes people go high if they find the animal just interesting. Mm. Um, and sometimes if that is interesting and not the cutest way, sometimes people go low. That's up to you. I'm not the boss of you. Okay. Well, I'm going to be biased again and I'm going to go a 10 because to see something the size of a giraffe flying around come on there's also like a little pterosaur that is called a neurognathus and it basically looks like it has a muppet face and the reconstructions <laughs> that float around for this one species they're very cute so like big like yoda eyes like those big sort of not empty solace eyes but just like you know what i mean you can't really see the iris they look very owlish sometimes Oh, dear. Some of the reconstructions are uh, a bit huh. uncanny valley. I don't know what feeling this is giving me. <laughs> it's a lot. So It looks kind of like a kind of like a Tarsier, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess it depends on what they want to do with the eyes and stuff because um so they reconstructed them with really big eyes because the orbit, the hole in the skull where the eye sits, they're quite big. But then I don't know, they have kind of a flat mm. face. 
I don't know. I mean, this thing is creepy. This thing is full on creepy. (laughs) (laughs) And here I was being like, this is the cute one, guys. Nope. (laughs) Google images. This is a little gremlin. That's what he looks like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually. Yeah, I don't know. Like some of the reconstructions for pterosaurs, though, they, I think, are really inspired by birds. They're very colorful and flamboyant. Um, they take a lot of liberty with sort of reconstructing what the soft tissue structures look like as well. But I think there's like pterosaur for everyone. There's a lot of variety. I'm dropping a link in the chat to an incredible image. Oh, no. <laughs> that I am absolutely... Uh... <laughs> I don't know about this one. I just want you to see it and share in my feelings. Oh, oh, gosh. (laughs) What? (laughs) What did they do with its teeth? (laughs) Why did they give it like a tiny little pig snout? That's a lot. (laughs) I'm obsessed with like the grimace sort of face that they've given it while also like just valiantly lunging into the sky. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, Big fan of that one. I've made a 180 on my opinion on this one. This is my favorite one now. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know if it has a little pig snout, but I mean, (laughs) well, they don't. Some of them have like a big nerus, so like a big cavity, Mm. you know, connected to the nasal and all that kind of stuff. But honestly, it's probably not too different to a crane. So if you look at a crane at the right angle, you can just see through their skull. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think some of them had maybe a bit of that going on. Mm. But yeah, it'd be great for me if I could just hop back and see what they're doing. It would make my PhD a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if it's like, oh, you died here. Let me just bury you real quick and I'll just come back here. (laughs) <laughs> Let me just uh, pack some of that mud on nice and tight so we've got a nice, uh, let's get a good seal going on. I'll be back. I'm going to save this one for later. Mm. <laughs> I'll call you. Enjoy the next couple million years. Uh, you just chill here for a bit and I'll be back. I hope things go well. <laughs> hope this works out for you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, are you are you familiar with Pokemon? Yes. Big Pokemon nerd. Do you know what this is? That's the Pokemon. Wait, is that? Hold on, stop. Don't tell me. Is that the little Pikachu mm-hmm. IR thing from like 2001, maybe? Mine, the back of mine says 95, 98. So I'm really showing my age. So this no is a Pokemon way. Pikachu. Wow. I got given this for Christmas, right? And I've started because I play Pokemon. I used to play Pokemon Go, but because I live in the middle of nowhere, my eggs won't hatch anymore. So I cracked the sads and i've started to use this instead because i'm like i need something to track my steps when i was six years old i had not that one that you just had in your hand did you have like a silver one i had the silver one yes 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 and that thing took me places i was so i had i carried that thing religiously and i haven't thought about it in at least 20 years (laughs) and so just like unlocked a core memory for me. <laughs> but I asked you about Pokemon to ask you how you feel about uh, Aerodactyl. Yes. Okay. So I think I swear I have encountered in real life someone meant to say Pterodactyl to mean Pterosaur, but they said Aerodactyl to me, <laughs> which I was like, game see game. Um, okay. So let's unpack Aerodactyl. 
Right, so Aerodactyl is, it's probably inspired by a few different species sort of thrown together. So you know how Aerodactyl, we'll start with the Mm. tail, just to be weird. (laughs) The tail has that little (laughs) dart on the end. Yeah. So that's actually inspired by um, soft tissue preservation of Pterodactylus. (gasps) So in the limestone deposits of Bavaria, so this is how we know where the wings attach in this kind of thing as well, because we can kind of see sometimes the wing itself, where we can see like a halo where the wing used to be, but now it's gone. They also found on the end of Pterodactylus this little sort of more of a diamond shape on the end of the tail. It's very choice aesthetic. Mm. I'm here for it. <laughs> um, and obviously they decided to go for that. I actually have an Aerodactyl sticker really? on my water bottle as well oh because gosh. I didn't have any, yeah, I didn't have any pterosaur stickers. And I'm like, I can't be a pterosaur paleontologist and not have a sticker. So at the time I just went with Aerodactyl. Oh, it has three little non-wing manual phalanges. So three itty bitty, the first three digits on the hand are just nubs that do not much. And then the fourth is the wing. So we love that. That's correct. But then, I mean, no pterosaur has sort of horns on the back, but it kind of reminds me of Charizard. So I like that. In Gen 1, they were putting a lot, they were slapping a lot of horns on stuff. Yeah. Horns and the plant that smells like rotting meat. Yeah, the corpse flower. <laughs> yeah, the They're corpse like, flower. Yes, go slap that on there. Two of them. Two Pokemon inspired by them. Um, <laughs> I really love the premise of um, fossil Pokemon, by the way, except Incredible. for Sword and Shield. But that's a whole other. Oh, how they got the, the jumbled up ones. Oh, they did us dirty. It was. Oh, I'm so mad. It was funny. <laughs> I, I actually wanted, I was like, oh, maybe I should get like. A Pokemon game, you know, I don't do as much gaming these days. I've tried to wean myself off it. And I was, like, getting ready to, like, maybe buy Pokemon Sword of Shield. And then I was like, am I a joke to you? And I was just so <laughs> mad. And I was just like, I'm not playing this game <laughs> to have what I do just be at the butt of some sick joke. I'm like, nah, nah. <laughs> so... For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, in Pokemon, you can find fossils as items and then revive them, and then you can have a fossil Pokemon on your team. Sick concept, right? Very Jurassic Park. And then in Pokemon, correct me if I'm wrong, in Pokemon Sword and Shield, they had it so that the fossils were broken up, and then you needed to combine them together. Yes, but they didn't match. No, they were all Frankensteins. (laughs) They're all awful. (laughs) hurts my head to think about it the most painful thing about it to me is that the little chunks of the designs that we got to see looked so cool they're amazing like one is inspired by dunkle osteus <laughs> they look so cool and I like i wanted one so bad and w- you only get it in like as like halves of these other two unrelated pokemon <laughs> and the pokedex entries as well it's just garbage it's like this is why under natural selection this group went extinct and i'm like no you're wrong the whole system is wrong (laughs) anyway if you want to hear my thoughts on this the pals and paleo episodes i'm going to talk about it in the episode on dunkle osteus um but yes getting back to aerodactyl i mean i would love more pterosaur pokemon 
but if Aerodactyl is it and they never do another pterosaur Pokemon again, that's fine. It has a Mega Evolution as well, which again looks a bit like primitive and scaly, like pterosaurs didn't have osteoderms, bony armor, but it's fine, you know. Mega Evolutions mm. are, yeah, they're okay. Rest in peace. There was a, a short-lived gimmick. They also went extinct. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I learned recently that there is a genus of pterosaur named Aerodactyl. Oh, really? Like named after the Pokemon. Yeah, I, I learned that not too long ago because uh, I was doing a video about like animals with scientific names named after Pokemon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your TikToks. And one of them was Aerodactyl. There was like a whole genus of of pterosaurs named Aerodactyl. Oh, yeah. Aerodactylus. Aerodactylus. That's what it was. Oh, it's named in 2014. Okay. These guys grew up with Pokemon, obviously. <laughs> I know there's also like one species of pterosaur that's sort of named and it's um, in reference to Game of Thrones, but like I don't watch Game of Thrones. Oh, I bet it's one of the dragons. Yeah, uh, Targaryen <laughs> Draconia, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I was bringing that up because you have some insight and experience in the species naming arena, as far as you know, working with an animal that you got to name. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so you asked me before at the start of the episode what got me working on pterosaurs, and it was completely by accident. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, so I wanted to do a master's project, and I was like, oh yeah, I've worked on insects before, I'll just continue sticking with what I know and I'll work on insects. There's some stuff in the collections that no one's looked at, that sounds great. Wrote my entire like master's proposal, this, you know, really serious document that you're going to present to the university to try and, you know, have them support you. And I already had supervisors lined up. I was like a couple months off from officially submitting that. And then this amazing pterosaur was found in uh, my local area. And the head of the museum where it got donated to I was working there as a tour guide. They knew I really wanted to do a postgrad, PhD, or um, a master's, and they gave me first dibs at working on it. I was the first person to be asked to work on that specimen. And yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like, well, I have to say yes, don't I? I don't know anything about pterosaurs, but (laughs) I can't let this opportunity pass me by either. So um, you learn about pterosaurs real quick. (laughs) Oh boy. I was like, I I said yes. And then I'm like, okay, I need to get a book on pterosaurs to figure out what's going on. (laughs) Because like you said before, to look at, it's like, how, why, even just to watch Prehistoric Planet and I guess see them walking around, but then you're looking at that and then you're just kind of sat there, like, head tilted and then like, and you flew as well? Like, what? None of this adds up. Yeah. So it is the most complete. The pterosaur that I ended up working on is the most complete one that's been found in Australia. Wow. Uh, it's a skeleton represented by 10% of the skeleton. So we had parts of the skull, we had uh, a good amount of wing bones, mostly from the left and a couple from the right, and some neck bones as well. And the wingspan on that pterosaur would have been four meters, which is equal to 13 feet. So like a decent sized animal. And this is the one I dropped my phone charger on, by the way. And like, so while I was studying it as well, because I'm based in 
outback Queensland. I actually took it down to Melbourne to have it scanned at the Australian synchrotron, like a really fancy high-tech scanner, right? It survived the plane trip. It survived going through customs. And anytime I, half the time I go through an airport, I'm, I've got a fossil with me half the time. <laughs> you know, I got pulled up and they're just like, what's this? And I'm like, it's a dinosaur. Like, I'm a paleontologist. And always <laughs> airport security staff, they're always so interested and so lovely and supportive. They're like, oh, that's so cool. Because I'm like, it's not, it's not a human. I didn't murder anyone. Please. If I was that officer, you would never make it through that line because you'd be talking, you'd be stuck talking to me for the rest of the day. I think a lot of them really want to, but they also are professional and they want to keep the line moving. Um, but yeah, shout out to Longreach and Brisbane Airport Security because I have to go through um, Brisbane anytime I fly out here, basically. And um, it has to be a moment where you're like, how do I tell these people that I, yes, they're bones. Like, these are my bones that I'm flying with. Well, <laughs> see, the thing is, I also, because Australia has quite intense biosecurity stuff as well. Most of the time I lean towards rocks first so that they know it's not like a threat to agricultural practices, you know, the natural ecosystems and that kind of thing as well. Because the last thing I want is for my bones to be destroyed because they think that they have some sort Mm. of disease um, that'll screw up the ecosystem. But yeah, so for Draco, Lentini means Lenten's Iron Dragon. So its name honors uh, the previous mayor of Winton. Yes, I'm not a Minecraft person, but apparently Pharaoh Draco, spelled slightly differently to how I spell my boy's name, uh, apparently it's like a boss in Minecraft as well. But yeah, I was just happy that the name was not taken because... There was one big pterosaur, and it was named in the 1950s, and its name was Titanopteryx. That is a very cool name. Well, it was such a cool name that it got taken up by a beetle beforehand. But, you know, 1950s, pre-internet days, it's not as easy to work out, you know, is this name preoccupied? So the rules with naming things, there's an actual rule saying you can't name things after yourself. What? That's not fair. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, no. But like, see, that's the thing, though. Like, if you make a contribution to the field, hopefully someone else will name something for you. Or maybe you'll die Mm, and it'll happen after you die. Who knows? So that's that's the thing. You can't name things after yourself. One of the other rules with naming things is that the genus name has to be unique. I think plants and animals can overlap. But yeah, you can't have like an overlapping genus name. Uh, you can have repeats on species names. So lots of things I know in Australia, there'll be a few things that their species name is, you know, connected to a place or something. Like I live in Queensland, there might be a few things that are Queenslandicus. Some of the other rules are if you started with Latin roots, you stay with Latin roots. Try not to mix up Greek and uh, Latin because they are different. That anyway, makes sense. I'm probably getting too far into it. Well, I, I'm assuming that there's rules about, like, e- it can't be a bad word, right? Like, it can't be profane. Yes, no swears. Don't punch down and upset marginalized groups or anything like that. A lot of the time, a fossil name is inspired by the place where it came from. There might be something to do with the group that it belongs to. So pterosaurs will sometimes end in pteryx, which means wing, or um, dactyl, which means wing finger, 
Sucus is like a common one for crocs just off the top of my head. But, you know, you can use Venator, which means hunter, and I've seen it used in dinosaurs and all kinds of different groups. So You just want it to sound cool. You just throw that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, 100%. <laughs> I wanted something that was cool and relatively easy to say as well. Um, I didn't want a super long name. And actually, to try and help me strategize what the name was going to be like, I actually had an Excel spreadsheet. So I had Draco, I had Terex, I had Dactyl in one column, and then I had some other combinations. When I had worked out, okay, this is pretty different compared to all the other pterosaurs in the world. Awesome. What am I going to name it? You know, probably like 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon when I was just getting a bit headachey and a bit wrecked, I would just go into my little Excel spreadsheet and just mess around with different combinations and try and pick out a name. I guess it's like, I don't know, I don't have kids, but I imagine it's sort of the same thing as um picking out a name for a kid. I was just about to say this is very reminiscent of like the baby name spreadsheets that I think many people who have kids have come up with a baby name spreadsheet. Because here's the thing, right? That name's going to be around for a long time. Hopefully, as long as um, I know in paleontology, sometimes things get synonymized, which means that you've named something as a new species, but actually it's a species that we already know about somewhere else. So then the one that got named first, it takes priority. So your name gets cancelled, kind of. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think one of the rules is that if you came up with a new name, even if it becomes a synonym of something else, I don't think things can use that name. So it's just taken up forever. You got dibs. Yeah, well, yeah, you kind of got dibs. And that's another thing too. Like, if you have a cool name, but the fossil isn't that great, then it's just taken forever. (laughs) Oh, man, you wasted a cool name. Yeah, kind (laughs) of. (laughs) But then you're like, how many shots are you going to get to name something, right? Like, Mm. how many things are you going to get to name, right? Maybe if you've only got one cool name in you, shoot your shot, you know? (laughs) Yeah, we can't all be, like, early paleontologists and just naming new species based off of, like, one scrappy-looking tooth and all this kind of stuff and try and get, like, 60 or 70. I feel super... Super lucky and privileged to have been in a position where, as a student, I've been able to name a new species, and um, it's been, yeah, really well received. It got put on a stamp in Australia last year. That was pretty sick. (gasps) Oh my gosh, that is so cool. We bought like a hundred of those stamps. (laughs) That is so cool. I love that. I'm I'm glad that it was like, you know, received so warmly. That's got to be an exciting thing. Yeah. And for, for people that are listening that are feeling like, oh gosh, I really have, you know, the bug now. I want to learn more about dinosaurs and extinct creatures and, and what it's like to be a paleontologist and things like that. Uh, they will have the opportunity to do so with your upcoming podcast that I'm really, uh, upcoming as of when we're recording this, but by the time this goes up, it will be out and available to listen to. Can you tell folks about Pals and Paleo? Yeah, so I love podcasts, obviously. I did out myself as a Just the Zoo of Us <laughs> nerd at the start. Um, and I've been able to be on a few podcasts like over the years and stuff. And as someone who helps like run a farm as well, I just love having that on in the background as I'm doing a job, especially if it's not a fun chore to do. So part of it is I wanted to make the podcasts that I've been looking for for years because there are some really great paleontology podcasts, but there isn't a big focus on 
stuff in Australia. So I kind of wanted to create something like that. And then I actually went to a more general science conference at the start of this year. And, you know, there were these professors and doctors and I talked to some of them and they were like, oh, we have dinosaurs in Australia. And I was like, no, (laughs) I was like just dying. So I'm like, okay, I'm really passionate about working on fossils found in my area in particular, like Koa Country, Central Western Queensland. And for, I think, a lot of the people that live in my neck of the woods, we know we've got dinosaurs, but it's still kind of not hitting across Australia. So yeah, I kind of just want to like get the word out there. Yes, we have dinosaurs and we have some really cool dinosaurs and other fossils as well. Yes, dinosaurs are awesome. We all know that, but you know, there's really cool stuff too. So I've sort of taken a leaf out of the Just the Zoo of Us playbook <laughs> and wanted to do some episodes on paleobotany, some fossil plants, and if possible, talk about some fossil fungi, which is even rarer still. But there are fossils out there, so Mm. yeah. But because I'm kind of busy, I'm just going to do episodes in a season and then sort of see how we go. But I've got plans to travel to at least two Australian conferences, and I've already got some guests lined up for future episodes as well. So yeah, just going to chat to um, some other researchers about what they work on and talk about the form function and family groupings of fossils. That's so cool. Be the podcast you want to see in the world, I think. Um, And I used to work as a tour guide as well. So I do love talking, but when you live, you know, over 80 miles or 100 kilometers from the nearest town, it's not easy to go and do school visits and stuff. And I'd love to do a bit more science communication and outreach and have stuff that's going to be out there that people can hopefully find whenever. And if, you know, someone learns something from it or they just feel less alone, then mission accomplished. Yeah. Oh, you, you got to get your info dumping fix in. Oh. You can't just have nobody to spill your brains onto. Oh. <laughs> when I find out new fossil facts, a lot of the time, whoever I see next, like in the hallway or whatever, they just <laughs> cop it. <laughs> hey, did you know? And um, cancel your plans. Yeah. <laughs> It's not, have you heard about our Lord Poseidon? (laughs) I'm the bane of our grocery store cashier's existence. They have to know. I'm like, hey, uh, you random person that I will never speak to again in my life. (laughs) You want to hear this cool fact I just learned? (laughs) (laughs) I feel that I could definitely relate to that. So anybody who has had their curiosity piqued by the mysteries and the uniqueness of like animals long past, uh, animals that unfortunately we haven't gotten to see, but that we have the opportunity to learn about even millions of years afterwards. If that's the sort of thing that is your vibe and you're interested in that, I will have links in the episode description to Adele's podcast, which I'm really excited about. I think it's going to be really, really fun and I'm really excited to hear it. And I think that y'all will be too. So just scroll down and click through. Uh, Adele, where else can people find you? Where do you want to be found on the internet? Look, you can find me on Twitter at Adele Pentland, but I'm terrible at Twitter. I will post and ghost and then a friend of mine <laughs> used the message function and I didn't see it until like a month later. I'm like, I'm so sorry, Roy. I only just saw this. I'm much more active on Instagram though. I'm at Pals and Paleo and Paleo Dell. So people will call me Dell or Deli because Adele is, you know, 
five letters. That's far too long in Australia. <laughs> um, so Paleo Dell is spelled P-A-L-A-E-O-D-E-L. Paleo spelt the Aussie way. And yeah, pals and paleo is just all one word. And I'll post some dumb memes and stuff there and maybe some extra info about episode topics and that kind of thing. It's been an absolute delight to learn so much from you today, Adele. I can't thank you enough for your time and we'll talk to you later. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you for continuing to make episodes of Just the Zoo of Us. It's literally one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you. We'll catch you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that the pterosaur forever continues to soar through your heart. If you liked what you heard, I hope you leave behind some kind words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice, like whammies who says, and I quote, this podcast has made me completely insufferable to be around. Every word out of my mouth for the past 72 hours has been animal facts. No one is safe. Which brings me so much comfort to know that I am not only not alone in my animal fact crusade, but in fact, contributing to its recruitment. So thank you. If you want to hang out with us online, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Discord. Links to everything will be in the episode description. You can also send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear us talk about on the show. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside the other wonderful shows like the ones that you heard promos for here today. You can check those out and learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show over at MaximumFun.org. Finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. That's all for today. See you next week. Thanks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.